people say AI, and when you get down to it, they mean you know a standard deviation, which isn't even machine learning. Like this is just a mathematical calculation. And so oftentimes marketers or or different people will actually misuse the terminology. Nick Durkin is the field CTO and VP of field engineering at Harness, where he focuses on solving the technical challenges that are standing in the way of true innovation. Today, we're talking about how Harness uses AI and ML to remove the most annoying parts of your job so that you can focus on what you do best. Welcome to DevOps State of Mind, a podcast where we dive deep into the DevOps culture and chat with friends from small startups and large enterprises about what DevOps looks like in their organizations. I'm Lise from LogDNA. Join us as we get into a DevOps state of mind. All right, Nick, welcome to the show. Lise, thank you so much for having me on. Genuinely appreciate it. Yes, this is going to be fun. I'm excited to get into the conversation. Before we start, can you just tell the audience a little bit about yourself and how you came to be the field CTO and VP of field engineering at Harness. Sure. Yeah, no, it's a it's an interesting role, but one of the the neat things is that you uh, you aren't told that this is an opportunity you have coming out of college. Like this is not something yeah. you realize it's a job. And like a lot of us, you know, we came from being the customer. So I came from building redundant data centers for the banks, building a whole bunch of patents and fraud prevention and mobile authentication and data aggregation and doing it for the financial institutions for critical infrastructure for the United States. Hmm. And in so doing it for some of the most highly regulated, most complex environments, uh, gave me a little bit of insight to be able to do it then for a lot of different companies. Yeah. And so made the jump over to the other side of the world and actually, you know, now selling to uh, the companies now being the consumer of but really worked uh, a lot in Silicon Valley with a lot of different VCs and a, a lot of different SaaS startups, specifically when you think about it, business to business kind of SaaS startups and really helping find market fit, finding the first customers and growing sales engineering teams. My background specifically was in data analytics, AI, ML. I used to be called the biggest guy in big data. Uh, I think uh, <laughs> I've probably lost that uh, in, in, in the timeframes, but uh, that, that was something that, uh, that it used to be coined. I like it. So catchy. Where in the world are you located? Great. Uh, I actually tell everyone that I, I live on an airplane because I'm usually wherever customers are. Um, I'm all over the world, but I do my laundry in Arizona. So okay. my family and I uh, reside here in, in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona. Awesome. It's beautiful there. Absolutely. I'm originally from New Mexico, so desert girl at heart for sure. You know it well. Yes, I do. I do. Let's dive a little bit into your role. I think for some people, the the role field CTO might be a new concept. You said yourself, it's not necessarily something you knew. It was a career path right out of college. What does that exactly mean? And how does it differ from your standard CTO? I'm using air quotes for those listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. T -t Typical CTO, right? So I think, you know, when you think about a field CTO, this role has bearings in the sales side, so in the pre-sales portion of it. And so my background comes in the architectural side and designing, and this is what we did early days. So Jyothi, our founder, Rishi, co-founder, uh, both co-founders, you know, we would sit in rooms and we'd whiteboard and figure this out early days. And then we had to figure out how it was going to work with customers. And so that's yeah. where you need someone who can actually interact with the customers and who can actually bring that data back and ask even the hard questions of, of why. So a lot of customers will bring requests of like, hey, we really want to do this. And it's like, 
why do you want to do that? There's 450 people who don't, that, that are very similar to you that don't do that. Why would you want to do it? And really get to the why. Uh, and so it's, it's about being that technical individual uh, that can kind of help shepherd your product through to other customers, but then ultimately bring back the requirements and the requisites back to engineering. Uh, you know, it's funny, I, I think of the office space movie and, and the guy says, you know, I'm a people person and, and I bring I bring the, the requirements from from the customers to the engineers and, and you know, they, they can't talk to each other. So in part, it's that, um, but it's also in part being able to deliver our roadmap and understand at the most technical levels how our product works and how it integrates. So that when I do have a conversation with a customer or with a prospect, I can truly understand how that could actually function, where it could be built in, what timeframes it would take to make. So it's really more customer facing than a traditional CTO. Still work hand in hand with product, but still also work with sales engineering teams, solutions architecture, post sales as well. Awesome. I'm sure you've read the book, Start With Why. It's like in the marketer's starter pack. So definitely something that's been on my bookshelf for a long time, but I think it's so important to just ask that foundational question. It's extremely important. I think, you know, oftentimes we're dealing with extremely intelligent people. Yeah. So they've already figured out 90% of the puzzle. And oftentimes their question will be, can you solve the last 10% for me? Now, we don't know we're getting asked that, but that's the question we're asked. Hey, can you solve this little thing that I have a gap for? And what's infinitely more valuable to the company who's asking for it or to the business is to figure out what was the ask as a whole in the first place? Mm. What, you know, wh where did the beginning start? So to that point, why do we need that 10%? Okay, well, we actually need more. Okay, well, what have you done to get there? How have, you, how have you approached it? What could we do differently? Because oftentimes you can leverage what's you know, already there or take a different route that wasn't available to the company before. And so giving them new information, they can make different decisions. But if we don't get to the why, it never uh, shows itself. Yeah, that's great. Tell me a little bit about the problems that you're solving at Harness and what it is that you all do. Sure. Um, Harness, we started life as continuous delivery as a service. So when you think of CI and CD, we talk about them together, but we'll talk about CI as being code to artifact, right? So all of your code, doing your tests, getting your build, getting your artifact out. And we think about continuous delivery, we think about it from artifact, not just to production, but to customer. Because the customer's got to be happy. So just because it hits prod, but it doesn't work, that doesn't do us any good. So right. we say artifact to customer. And that's where we found the hard part was. So we solved continuous delivery as a service uh, for folks. That's where we kind of built our, uh, you know, our company around. And with all the things that we've done, we've built it with an, a mindset of using AI and ML to actually uh, make people's lives easier. So we started with continuous delivery and we said, let's think about deployments the same way your best engineers would. So let's go look at the metrics that we care about. Let's go look at the performance. Let's go look at, if those are slow, let's go look at the logs and understand how, you know, what's actually broken and think about it like your best engineers. Yep, that's fine. That's fine. I see it every time. Don't worry about it. Ooh, there's a new one. Let's go look at that, right? And so give that information. So when you think about it, if you ask any anyone in the DevOps space who loves babysitting deployments, everyone will tell you no. <laughs> you ask them who loves the free pizza in the war room, everybody's like, heck yeah. Um, but now war rooms are remote, so we're not getting the pizza anymore. So it's just, right. just bad altogether. Yeah. And so that was where we started the company with just continuous delivery. And all of our customers said, hey, there's so much more in the software delivery space that we'd love for you to take and, and help us in that same aspect. And, and you know, with that, still rolling governance and compliance and security and auditability and speed. But really, let's take the worst part of our jobs away from our, our engineers and some of our best people. So 
we entered the CI space because we thought it was solved. We thought CI was kind of a, a solved things. Jenkins had it sorted, right? The circles of the world had done it. And our customers said, hey, we'd love that same paradigm that you have for continuous delivery for our build side, for our CI, for our developers. And so we, of course, acquired Drone, the most loved open source CI tool on the planet, massively invested in that. But then even then with our enterprise offerings, let's take care of what engineers hate. So who loves running tests forever, right? Like, hey, I go do my build and I've got 7,000 tests I have to run. I'm going to go get coffee and wait. No one likes doing that. So let's think about it logically. If I change the gas cap on your car, you wouldn't expect me to go check every single electrical system and every single light and every radio. Like that wouldn't make sense. But we do that every time we do a build. And it, it just doesn't make any sense. So let's take away all of that extra workload. Let's take that from our engineers. So let's give them some of their time back. Let's prioritize it. Let's take the, the tests that, that fail often. Let's run those first. Like, why not Why not fail fast? Right. right. So do that in a meaningful way. And really throughout this whole process, the entire portfolio that we have, so whether it's that, whether it's cloud cost management, no one loves turning on and off servers for non-production and saving money. It's great that it saves money, but it's a pain if I come into the office and my servers aren't up or if I'm trying to get in on a, on a holiday when I, I feel like working and they're not there or vice versa, I, you know, I, I need them, they're not, or they're not, and, and we're just wasting money. So why don't we do that again, intelligently, like your best engineers would. And then the same thing for feature flags. If you want to do complex deployments, you can do it with our continuous delivery, but if you want to flag a specific module to a group or to an environment or to a region or a demographic, you know, a lot of tools are out there that do that today, but they're not integrated in your pipeline where it's audited, it's compliant, and they're not thinking about it like your best engineers. So if you ask a company, well, great, I flipped a flag so that the East Coast gets a, a specific uh, view than the West Coast, how do you verify it? And they verify like we used to verify deployments 10 years ago, which is we ask the customer. Right. And so let's do it intelligently. So I know that was a long answer to a short question, and I apologize for that. No, it's what we're here for. We just want to hear you talk. Yeah, well, I appreciate it. I, I can do that a lot. So you can you can tell me to uh, to be quiet at any point in time. No, not at all. You mentioned compliance a couple of times. Let's just take a quick pause on that and talk about why that's really important for your customers. And if there are particular compliances that you hear people asking for more than others right now. Sure. Yeah, I think this is one of the things that people forget when they start on their continuous delivery journey or their software delivery lifecycle. So we get into doing and changing our ways because we want to go fast. It's mm -hmm. the first reason. Hey, I want to go and I move to an automated approach because I want to be able to get things out to our customers faster. And that's pretty much a, you know, a standard across the board. What we find then after that is now that we started going fast, uh, we have to do it governed. Right. You know, if we look at Every customer, you know, we were talking about it, you know, five or 10 years ago where every customer is going to be digital. Well, now if you're digital, every customer is under some regulatory. I mean, even if you've got a, a store, right, you've got PCI compliance and a few others. So whether it's SOC or it's PCI or uh, whether it's HIPAA, if you look at all of our customers, traditionally they are regulated, right? Most of them, not all of them, but, but most of them. And the reason is, is because doing this fast in a governed compliant way is really hard. Mm -hmm. It's it's proof because we have so many DevOps people trying to do it, right? Like right. this is not easy. This is the hard part. So when you have a tool that's got it built in from the ground up, this is where it makes it beneficial. So you can guarantee you've met your compliance, your security, your governance. You can actually make sure that if you fail because of that, you invoke proper failure strategies. And it's part of a platform from the ground up. And when you think about Harness, it's everybody's on a different stage in that journey. So traditionally people will start, let's go fast. Then 
after they go fast, they go, ooh, I have to govern it. And they'll script it and they'll figure it out. You know, they'll use their open source tools or they'll use their CI tool and try to do it themselves. If they can achieve it, amazing. The next issue they actually have is quality. So you go fast, right? Then you find a way to govern it and make it secure and compliant. Now you can deploy really fast. So your monoliths are turned to microservices. Your microservices are now deploying daily, multiple times a day, you know, they're infinitely faster. Right. You've got an end times end problem and people don't know what broke what anymore. And this becomes the next challenge. So how do we verify it? And what's interesting is if you can achieve all three of those, if you've been able to script and, 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 and create something that can deploy successfully, but then if and if it fails, has the appropriate steps and measures to take care of those failures for you, now you get into an efficiency issue, which is, how much resources am I using? How often are they up and running? What percentage am I using? Are we leaving them open? And now we have issues where cost comes into play, especially if we're in the public cloud, because we're deploying so fast, things can be left out there. And if you don't plan your entire software delivery lifecycle around that specific set of requirements, you'll hit these as you progress. And everyone we find is somewhere in that journey, right? Uh, very few times we found somebody who, you know, from cradle to grave has got it all sorted, right? We're all working on it. Right. How do you think the cost factor changes depending on where a company is in its journey? I feel like we see this a ton in the Valley with companies who had a huge series A or series B, like this year was just insane the amount of money that is going into these companies and so something like cloud costs might not be that big of a deal to them and they build around this idea that they don't have to be thinking about it and then eventually get to a point where they're like crap we have built an entire business around not caring how much we're spending on infrastructure how do you see that show up for your customers. What's even more interesting than even that. So we see that all the time. So we see customers that let's just go build, we'll build as fast as we can. And of course we go to the cloud because I can start cheap. Right. And I can have an HA data center for two, you know, tiny instances and I'm highly available across two data centers. Like mm -hmm. that's amazing. That would cost me millions of dollars just to build the data centers, let alone put one server in it. Right. So your buried entries come down with cloud. So we've seen that. But what ends up happening is that in these companies, we go, and I, I don't, you know, it doesn't make sense. We go and say, hey, there's the auto mall with every car manufacturer out there. Go pick any car you want. Mm -hmm. And now some of us are smart about it. And we say we put a little boundary on it. Say, hey, you can only spend this much a year, right? You give them a budget. But they don't even know the budget's there. They don't even know how much they cost. And they go grab the Ferrari. And the cool part is they get to use that Ferrari for three hours. <laughs> and they love it. But then they realize I got to give it back. Yeah. Because I've hit my budget. And this is just, it's not an appropriate way. So what we found is that people aren't actually empowering their engineers. Engineers don't have visibility into the cost, yet they're being pushed to you know, shift left everything, including the choice of server. Right. But yet they're not given the dollars and the sense and the information. So with our, our view on it is this, is that let's empower those people. Let's give them that information now so that they know when they're gonna deploy what it's gonna do to their spend. Hey, this is gonna 10X your spend because you're asking for a whole bunch more replicas and a whole bunch of memory that you don't need. You probably want to know about that before you press play, right? As opposed to 30 days later when the CFO yells at you and 15 days later after you've done all your research and figured out we need to shut down. Right. So now you paid for that for 45 days. It just doesn't make sense. Why wouldn't you empower the people 
that are being specifically given the permission and the requirements to go make those decisions, why wouldn't you give them that information? And that's where we want to change the game. So when you think about it, a lot of people say cloud cost management does not belong in the software delivery lifecycle. Wrong. I think it doesn't exist there today because other tooling doesn't do it. I think it's absolutely where it belongs. If we truly believe in DevOps and we truly believe in CICD and we believe in shift left, if that's true, they need that information. They have to have it. Right. And so it's really about empowering them. I love that. We recently did a body of research with the Harris poll and just wanted to understand how people were approaching observability and kind of this intersection of cost and observability data management. And something that came up was like, everybody thinks that they need to save all of their data, obviously. <laughs> all data, all time, yep. But yep. it's super expensive, especially if you're using, you know, a single pane of glass solution, or if you're sending a bunch of stuff to a SIM and, and duplicating that data and sending it into a log analysis tool as well. And it turned out that like a huge percentage of people were actually just dropping logs and not storing them at all once they hit whatever their budget cap was, which is super dangerous because then it's, you- It's also super against regulatory in a lot of cases, not all yes. cases. And usually people are particular about those cases, but oftentimes this happens. Yeah. And then you don't have the information that you need when you need it. No. And that can show up in so many different ways, right? From a regulatory or compliance perspective, if you have to do an audit, the information's not there you're not compliant. But even if you just need to troubleshoot or debug an issue, I find it really interesting. And I love that you talked about shifting the control point left. And I think so many different industries are looking at how they can do that and how they can give more people more information and more control over making informed decisions. Like it doesn't have to be that way, right? Yeah. You should be able to choose which data goes where routed appropriately based on cost and volume and like a ton of other things, but it still kind of feels like early days. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I think a lot of people are starting, you'll see a ton of new startups coming on that are specifically even at the early ingestion of that data, right? The mm -hmm. log data, like they're really starting to process a whole bunch of it so that they can cut down costs. They can ship less, but still meet the requirements. And I think it's interesting that that, you know, it's become that costly or that complex a problem that now we're we're building entire companies right. around minimizing that. So that tells you there's a pain. So yeah. look at a market, you'll know there's pain. Look at the dollars they're making. So we know that that's true. And what's interesting, people don't realize that they don't have access to the day they need until they're asked. Right. <laughs> and that's the worst spot to be in where you believe you had what you needed. Right. You thought you were making the right decisions only to find out that you didn't. And I think that's one of the things, it's actually, I think you and I even talked about this once before, which was when we when we talk about software delivery, oftentimes we talk about you know people, process, and technology, or people, process, and tooling. Yeah. And so we can stick the log and the analytics and the tooling side. But the reality is this is about confidence. Do you have confidence that your people can deploy appropriately without making mistakes? Are you confident that you've made it easy for them to do the right things and you've made it hard for them to do the wrong things? If you are, You'll let them deploy all the all the time, twenty four seven, three sixty five. Like, why do we have a blackout window? Because you you trust that all of the measures are in place, whether it's people, whether it's process, whether it's technology. And that's why I think that's kind of garbage. It has nothing to do with people, process, technology. It has one hundred percent to do with confidence. If you're confident in in the way that it's going to happen, you'll let it happen. 
I love it. That's such a good way to frame it. Let's talk about AI and ML a little bit. Let's just hear how you would describe AI and ML um, for people who often conflate the two. Perfect. I think this is great because so I actually teach a course on this um, because this is such a misused uh, term, a misused you know uh, area of technology. You know, people say AI, and when you get down to it, they mean you know a standard deviation, which isn't even machine learning. Like this is just a mathematical calculation. Right. And so, oftentimes, marketers or or different people will actually misuse the terminology, and a lot of people will. They'll they'll conflate and say, "Oh, yeah, we use a ton of ML, a ton of AI," and, and it is. It's just math. It's basic math um, at deviations and so forth. When it gets into machine learning, when we think about it, we think about it in really two categories. Traditionally, we think about so anytime you want to think about things that are supervised, meaning where humans get in, you know, have the ability to make interactions with it, or unsupervised, where you let the machine do it itself. And so you take like natural language processing. Let the machine figure out what it, you know, are these different words, are these different pieces? This is great. It's a great in concept, but that's unsupervised. I'm not sitting here telling it whether those two words are the same. It's figuring that out. Right. Yet, sometimes we want to give human context to machines. We want them to be able to understand things the way we do. And so that's where you want to give it neural feedback. And that, oftentimes, people will say, oh, that's AI. It's, no, that's actually human interaction. Um, and so that is us supervising a machine learning model. Where AI comes into plays, in, and oftentimes the boundaries are in, in type of things like neural networks, where they're actually learning for themselves. So they get smarter as the data comes in, and they continue to process and build their models themselves. And that's kind of the entry level to artificial intelligence, where it's truly thinking about it itself. And you know, here at Harness, we specifically, we use a massive amount of machine learning, and then we use a tiny bit of AI where we found some mistakes that machine learning couldn't handle. And I'll, and I'll give you a very clear one so that it it makes makes sense specifically in the logging environment. I think this this uh, stands true for both of us, so it makes sense. Yeah. So when you think about logs today, if I showed you two logs um, side by side with a different user ID or account ID or you know some some GUID, you and I would know because we can look at those logs. And say, oh, they're the same log. But if I showed it to a model that was using, say, natural language processing it would actually say they're different logs because those two account IDs are very different. Right. So there's human context you want to add. And now I could keep training it every single time, say, no, that's a that's an account ID. No, that's a separate account ID. But you've got thousands of customers. I don't have time for that. I have to build neural networks to think about it like humans do. And so that's what we've done. Build them really neat neural networks to go and understand in your logs, you know, oh, that's an account ID. That's a URL. That's a, that's a, the, that's a GUID, right? Okay. I can take that away and ignore that and I can look at the actual log. Not only that, I can look at where the log comes from, so where in the actual app stack it comes from, as well as the exception itself, and really start determining, is this the same exception in the same part of the application, in a different part of the application, or is this a different exception in the same part of the application? And so there we're gonna even use different methodologies to understand distance, right, as well as similarity. Are they similar, but then how far apart are they in the application? And so we use a massive amount of computation to get to it, but without those neural networks, when we first deployed this, um, one of our customers, build.com, you know, like a Home Depot for online. Yeah. I've heard him described as, if you know what you want, you go to Home Depot. If you don't, you go to build.com and you figure out all the things you want. And uh, so I think they're second in, in, that, in that space online. But they actually had an issue where their checkout counter had broken. And they used Harness to, to continually verify whether this was working. Their APM metrics told them that everything was fine. Hmm. Their performance metrics said everything was fine. Their log 
their log data said everything was fine. No, no new exceptions, no issues. What was interesting, they keep a metric, a very specific metric that says, and I think a lot of retailers do this, what percentage of people put something in their checkout counter and then actually check out? Right. So there's a loss. Some people put it in there and they never do. So there's a certain portion. But that number went down to zero. Harness rolled back 30 seconds. Traditionally, they would have taken a 30-minute outage. And that's literally revenues you can count for a retailer. I mean, it's millions of dollars. Yeah. And so instead, 30 seconds later, it was back to normal. So basically, on the time that you retried trying to buy, it was up and ready and going. And they had to do nothing. There was no no human interaction, no changes of code, no figuring out what, what and how it was configured. Because Harness knew what was deployed, on which infrastructure, with which configuration, and which secrets to get them back to where they were before they started. Amazing. All using that AI and that ML. And so we truly do. We, we use a massive amount of ML, depending on whether it's time series data or log data. And then we use some really cool neural networks to think about things like humans do. Cool. I love it. I've heard you say that you wouldn't even consider working at a company that wasn't using AI or ML. Why, why do you feel that way? <sighs> Great question. So if you go back, I don't know, 1800, late 1800s, everything was done by horses, right? Like, <laughs> sure. I, I mean, seriously, yeah. right? Like <laughs> we farmed with horses, we built with horses, we traveled with horses, like carts. And then we built mechanical muscle and it made our lives infinitely easier, right? The automobile changed a lot of things, um, manufacturing, uh, you know, just combustion engines in general. But now we made everyone's jobs easier. We lifted them up, right? We kind of, we raised all the tides and all the boats rose. And we're in the same kind of um, area now, but instead of mechanical muscle, we've got mechanical minds. And to that point, when I talk about what we're doing, we're not taking people's jobs, we're making them a lot easier. Right. And that is where the massive amount of, uh, I think, opportunity lies, is taking away the most mundane part of people's jobs is where you're going to see a huge uptick in, in software. And so in my mind, I'd rather be on the side that's uh, you know, creating those innovations as opposed to being one that is impacted by them. Yeah. Other than Harness, who do you think is doing really cool stuff with AI and ML? I mean, I, I have to go to NVIDIA a little bit. I mean, if you watch what they've done just on the hardware side of this space, um, you know, when you look at the original math coprocessors that were created and then turned into video cards and now what we're really doing with them, there's some massive um, places. There's some also some really cool in-memory databases that are giving instantaneous responses to terabytes of data. And it's just amazing to see what I used to have to wait weeks to get out of a, a report out of SAS or right. the, the, the analytics company or, or even Hadoop clusters, I'd take hours. Now I can have sub millisecond response times too. It's, it's absolutely uh, amazing because of the way that they're, they're starting to do this, this work. That's really cool. Sometimes I do like an icebreaker with folks before the podcast. We didn't do it today, which I'm regretting. But one of the questions that I love asking is, do you think that AI is as far advanced as the public thinks that it is? That's a great question. And I think the it's, it's actually both. So it is not and it is. And I think where there's profitability, it is far. And where we thought it would go in you know, helping humans in just generic capacities, it isn't. Mm. And so we've spent a massive amount of time and energy and effort building artificial intelligence to handle those really heavy workloads. Uh, the assumptions made by news and by the populace that that would be, you know, mostly for the consumer. And it's not. It's for business to business because that's where, where, where it's being monetized. The benefit, though, is that all of that work 
carries over to the consumer market. So it will be there. But I believe the business markets, you know, kind of achieving where it needed to be on the consumer side. I don't think there's enough time and energy spent. And I think it's because it's difficult to monetize. Right. What period of time do you think we need to wait to see that change? Yeah, I think what you need one big catalyst. And I've been looking at the self-driving cars as that catalyst. Uh, once you get enough of a percentage, 5-10% of self-driving cars that can prove without a doubt that they are safer than, say, humans driving. Uh, at that point, you will change public opinion. You will not have the fear, a lot of those things that are, are preventing it in the consumer space. Yeah, I think once you reach that, then, then you've truly, you know, you've actually achieved it. And what you'll see is a huge windfall. So you'll see from 10 or 15% to 70 in a very rapid succession. And that's, if you go look historically, that's accurate in how we see trends just in general. And I think you'll see the same thing for AI. Once it's useful in an area that we have as a burden to us every day, uh, and we can see that it's it's useful, then then it'll truly take over. Going back to your horses, I mean, perfect, per perfect, perfect example, <laughs> right? And and that's the thing is these are these are industries that we're we're affecting that are our largest industries in America. If you look, transportation and retail are two largest industries, and if you look at the most automated, transportation, right, and retail, and you'll yeah. continue seeing that again in, in the consumer space that will reach the consumer, but uh, that's where the investment's being made. Yeah, very cool. Am I remembering correctly that Arizona was one of the first places where self-driving cars could operate without a human? Yeah, if you look at Arizona specifically, or if you look at the Phoenix area where they've primarily been using, so we see Waymo's around here all the time and different Google ones, and of course, Tesla tries them out here as well. What you'll find is that our streets are built on a grid because we're a, I mean, we haven't even been a state that long. You know, history <laughs> is real recent. Right. Uh, here in Arizona. So our roads are actually built on a grid and they're built wide and they're built without some of the things that are a little harder. So if you, you bring a video game home and your children want to play it, you don't put them on the hardest level uh, with all the complexities on day one. You, 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 know, you start and, and the levels get harder. Well, Phoenix is going to be the easiest area to do it. It's a grid, large streets. Once you get into more complex, uh, you know, Boston, uh, New York, San Francisco, yeah, I know. It's a nightmare to drive here as a human. <laughs> oh, yeah. As a human, it's hard. And now yeah. imagine, you know, all the input. So it's much easier to do it uh, here. It's been great. And then also they can test it with some of the elements that they, they worry about. So Phoenix is used oftentimes for the heat as well, mm -hmm. just to make sure that those chips aren't overheating when they're when they're getting into real world scenarios. Yeah, very cool. Anything I didn't ask about Harness that you want the world to know? You know, every business has, uh, you know, drivers and intent. At Harness, we're around our people. You know, we have very um, remember the human kind of concepts. And like tomorrow, I won't be working, and nor will anyone at the company because it's one of our TGIFs. So everybody gets the day off because we know in this this virtual world, we're we're actually working more, yeah. and we're back to back to back, and there's no breaks. And so get some time to go do those things that you need. And so we think about people, and then I think, you know. Our intent is to truly change the way people are doing business. And you know, everybody says, oh, I want to change the world. Well, if I can change the world and give back some nights and weekends to the developers that aren't home with their kids, and if I can do that, I think I've, I've made an impact. And if that's all we do, great. But I think we can do much more. But that's literally what we're here to do. We're here to make people's lives infinitely easier uh, in the software delivery space. I love it. That's amazing. Well, Nick, it's been amazing having you on the podcast. Thank you for joining. 
For people who want to learn more about Harness, I will be sure to link to your website. And I love what you guys are doing. Super excited to see what's next. Absolutely. Tons of new, uh, I guess, uh, announcements coming uh, around availability for, for, for more technology, uh, more things around the software delivery space, and maybe even some things around uh, making it available for more developers. So tons coming here in the future. Thank you so much for having us on. Uh, reach out. Harness.io is, is our website. You can you know go get a free trial, start going now. Thank you so much again for having us on. Genuinely appreciate it. Yeah. Awesome. I love it. All right, folks, join me on the next episode for more conversations about the tools and processes that are essential for a successful DevOps culture. I'm Lise. Thanks for listening to this episode of DevOps State of Mind brought to you by LogDNA. If you want to hear more about the DevOps culture, subscribe to the show and pop over to our website at logdna.com to learn how to be more productive in a DevOps world. Links and information from today's episode are in the show notes. And DevOps State of Mind is produced and edited by Pamela Lawrence from Studio Pod Media. Thanks for listening.